This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is July 12th. The markets right now have been pretty flat. We see bond yields fall. Um, key part of the yield curve is on pace for the flattest close really since 2007. That's, of course, the two-year and the 10-year. And yeah, I mean, we're off just to kind of a sluggish start this week so far, but, um, you know, volatility is up slightly. Uh, but yeah, pretty flat day. Uh, Tim, any any big thoughts on what's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, look, the inversion is telling you that people are now more concerned about a big, ugly global recession than they are about uh, inflation really getting away from us. Um I don't know. I, I, I think I think we've got both. Uh, you know, uh, the Fed has got a tremendous amount of work to do uh, if they really are going to break um, sort of the wage spiral. And that is kind of the worst thing that can happen for a Fed, for, for a central bank, is to get behind the curve on really serious wage inflation. And, and one could argue and you see it with some of the small business sentiment, which is just terrible. Uh, the inability to hire workers. Well, you know, you can hire workers, but you're going to have to pay them a lot more. Uh, so that's where we are. We are way behind the curve with the Fed. Just to run through a couple of things before we get into some of the some of the topics that we discussed. You know, G5 credit impulse. So the G5 is. U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Japan, uh, and the impulse is the rate of change for credit creation. It has collapsed. So it and it doesn't look any different than the charts on global liquidity that have gone from all-time loose to all-time tight to all-time great demand for credit and growth to all-time little demand for credit and growth. So when people when you look at those stats, whether it's the global liquidity stats or credit impulse. Uh, I just don't see how anybody believes that we are going to achieve a soft landing. This is a massive tightening cycle that began at obscene uh, and complacent levels of excess liquidity. And I just don't see, looking at history, how that doesn't end up in a recession and a very real recession. Uh, The Fed is serious. They are going to keep going uh, until you see employment go up and start to go up a little bit uh, and start to go up, you know, more than a little bit. Uh, earning season has kind of gotten started. You're starting to see, um, you'll start to see revisions continue. S and P 500, uh, estimates got as high as 250. You know, when you go into a recession, historically you have at least 20% downside, to where NTM next 12 month uh, estimates are. So 250 takes you back to 200. We're 3,800 on the S&P. You're 19 times at, at, at 200. Is that is that super cheap? Is that Does that tell you that oh, not that valuation is a catalyst to buy something? But it's still just not compelling uh, if the history plays out like I assume it will on the earnings revision side. As I said, Consumer sentiment is terrible. It, you look at some of the conference uh, conference board numbers or the Michigan numbers, um, you are getting, especially on the expectation side, to all-time, uh, you know, to all-time nervousness. 
NFB, the small business sentiment is terrible. A lot of that is on the hiring uh, issues and the and the, and the cost of employees. Uh, and then on the housing side, you, again, the leading indicator is the NAHB sentiment. Um, and I think you're really going to start to see scary housing data. You already are in terms of, you know, some of the real growth cities really cooling off. Uh, there is an inflection in the rate at which housing in which ask prices are being lowered. So you put the house on for 600, no bites. Now you got to go to 550, maybe no bites. That is that we, you know, we went again from everybody being in bidding wars to, oh my God, you know, sentiment has changed. And that's how housing works. Housing has been in a hell of a bull market and, you know, it really benefits from the sort of the greater fool. Well, when you double the cost of capital, that all that bullishness is is behind us. So I, I think housing is is the area of the economy where you'll start to see some of the scarier cracks first. You know, employment is going to lag that. Uh, CPI is tomorrow. Uh, I think the forecast is actually for another high. Uh, now a lot of that is lagging data. Um, so you know these headline numbers will come down. Um, but you know, we're still in the very, very early days, as long as we're putting up headline, uh, CPIs above six, for God's sakes. And I think the estimate is for eight, eight tomorrow. Uh, the fed still got a hell of a lot of work to do. I think the two best things you could say going on right now is that everybody's bearish because kind of how can't you be, you know, with the exception of, uh, sell side strategists and analysts. And I think people have started to understand just how badly they are going to lag. They are just not going to be out in front of this. Uh, but if you look at non wall street, sell side economists, just virtually everybody is bearish. And you know, that tends to beget counter trend rallies and tends to beget opportunities. And then oil weakness, the commodity weakness that you've seen, you know, that, that is the first indicator that inflation is going to come off the boil, whether it's copper or now even the energy markets, um, you know, you know, I, I believe strongly that global spare capacity is a problem, that it will continue to be a problem. And more specific to the United States, refining capacity is only going one way, and that is down. So outside of recessions, we're going to have really, really high gas prices in perpetuity uh, until everybody's driving electric cars. Um, but yeah, the oil weakness is at least one relief uh, that you'll see. And that'll flow through. Oil obviously has knock-on effects to food and so forth. So hopefully that does offer a little bit of relief uh, to uh, to U.S. consumers uh, and even to kind of market sentiment. And when we talk about employment, do you think we're starting to see cracks? I mean, we're looking at May job openings drop slightly to 11.3 million. You have some a recent announcement out of Microsoft that they're going to be cutting their workers um, slightly as they look at the 2023 fiscal year, maybe around 1%. Uh, but overall, you know, the wages in May were up over 6%, which is the highest in a long, long time. Um, but yeah, do you think these numbers kind of indicate a slight cracking or do you think the labor market still remains strong? <laughs> the amazing thing is to talk about 6% wage growth 
and then to realize that it's still negative real wage growth. It's just 6% wage growth and people poor. Like it, it's just, that's inflation truly is insidious. Yeah, no inflation. I mean, uh, employment is starting to soften. There's no two ways about it. Uh, you know, you're still two for one job openings to every job uh, seeker. Uh, but that'll, that, that has started to come off the boil. Uh, the jolts has started to, uh, has started to come off. Um, challenger gray started to come off. Uh, and the, the, the stat that I think matters most for, for employment, the best stat that you could look at is not the non-farm payrolls, but it's just weekly jobless claims and, you know, weekly jobless claims have finally bottomed. Now you're still at tiny numbers and the NFP is still at big numbers, but it's the rate of change, and you have you have started to turn higher in weekly jobless claims, and I, and I think you will continue to do so. But it's not like, oh, good, weekly jobless claims will keep moving up. We'll get a couple of soft NFPs, and it's over. Like the wage price spiral is already happening. You know, when when you see restaurants close a couple of days a week because they don't have they don't have employ they don't have an, enough employees, or they just don't have a cost structure that can take on more employees at much higher prices that tells you the wage price spiral is happening and you know there are big long-term structural problems whether it be lack of immigration or uh low fertility rates uh you know the working age population uh being flat uh, or flat to maybe up one percent over the next ten years. Those big structural issues are not going away. So the Fed, if the Fed really is going to be serious, and I think they are, they're going to be they're going to be slowing this economy for a good while into a deep recession. And I think we'll probably end up having to see unemployment over four percent um, uh, before they're willing to say, okay, we've gotten on top of this. You know, there's been all of this talk about, we don't want to go through the stop starts of the pre Volcker era. You've really got to win. Uh, you've really got to beat inflation. Uh, and I, and I think that these structural issues around employment are so difficult. The fed knows it and they've really got to slow the economy a ton uh, to overcome that. But I think it's going to be a recurring issue when we come out the other side of this recession. I just think that as I've talked about, um, you know, the, the, the wage earner percentage of the pie has bottomed and is going up and it's going to continue to go up. And that has certainly negative long-term impacts on pro productivity. And it's hard for me to imagine that the S and P at all time, high operating margins is going to maintain that when all of a sudden you got to pay workers in a very dissimilar way than what how you've had to pay them historically. I think one of the big flashing indicators, and you mentioned this earlier in the market update, is obviously the price of energy. When we looked at this morning, WTI fell more than 7%. Uh, that's coming off of, you know, fair sizable declines last week. We've seen the you know, price of gas drop pretty precipitously over this past month. And I think at that point, you're just looking at, you know, a strong dollar. COVID is exploding once again in China. And, you know, that's that's all showing signs of a decreased demand. You know, you know, I, I think I said a couple months ago uh, when I did the podcast for the first time in a long time that, you know, the one area of the market that I kind of liked was energy. Well, I think that was a consensus call. And I think that as an inflation hedge, you had a lot of hedge funds and a lot of fast money that was long energy as, as a place to hide. So I think you're starting to see a lot of that speculative money uh, come out of it. But regardless, you know, 
in a in a in a in a in a world where, as I talked about, with the G5 credit impulse is collapsing, there is going to be less demand for the commodity. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it makes sense that oil would be coming off the boil here. Uh, my fear, again, is the long term that with, with spare, global spare capacity uh, kind of shrinking and the only areas that have real spare capacity is sort of the a couple places in the United States, the UAE and the Saudis. Nobody else does. Most of OPEC doesn't even hit their quotas. They don't come close. As you, uh, and then, uh, so, you know, I, I think that it's going to be the ongoing issue that doesn't go away whenever the world is in a better position and trying to grow again. It's going to have to grow in the face of just structurally higher energy prices. Yeah, I mean, OPEC itself came out and they stated that they expected 2023 demand forecast to fall to uh, 2.7 million barrels per day. Um, and they're certainly not a organization that makes a living being bearish on the oil market. So, but, yeah. you know, it's from, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. We, we talked about, you know, recessions and soft landing when we look at all this data. I mean, the U.S. has experienced what, like 30 recessions dating back as early as 1857. We've learned a lot, I think, about depressions and recessions and the fiscal and monetary tools we have at our disposal. Uh, but I was kind of diving into 95, which was kind of the last time we really orchestrated a nice soft landing. But my, I guess my takeaway from that is that the 90s were, globalization was so disinflationary. Mm. So that was really, you're doing it preemptively, mostly due to capacity utilization and manufacturing rather than underlying inflation. So you could, you know, it was just easier to tame that beast. Uh, yeah. Do you think that it's going to be a lot harder now that we have these big supply chain breakups and everything else to uh, to use monetary policy than it was in the 90s? Yeah, no two ways about it. And, and, and look, we're going to go a long ways. This is going to be a long, historically long tightening cycle. Uh, and remember, it's a tightening cycle that's coming from all time loose. So you know, you look at a historically long tightening cycle. Uh, again, I just don't see where guys can justify the argument uh, that we could have a soft landing. And and you mentioned there are those structural issues where you had you've gone from you know to contrast from '95 to now. Uh, '95, you still had great uh, working age population growth. You don't have that now. You had globalization then. You have deglobalization now. You had massive technological productivity improvements. Remember, I mean, hell, I was just learning how to use email uh, and and the internet and my dial-up modem, my 56K modem, you know, like, you know, AI and ML are not the same level of productivity winners as, you know, the creation of the internet, for God's sake. So, so I just, I, I think it's, it's, it's a totally different environment than the last time we were able to generate a soft landing. And the other part of it is just China as the ability, China was the exporter as, in, as in, in a sense of deflation. And it is not going to be that anymore, especially as the as the differential, the wage differential has shrunk so much, and then the cost of transport has gone up so much. So, you know, nearshoring and um, is 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 inherently uh, inflationary. And then the energy side of it is the other piece of it, where 
it is we 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 are gonna it's a hostile world it's an increasingly hostile world um so i just and and then the fact is how does europe how does the uk avoid a recession i mean they are they've really got a gun to their head with putin uh quite literally and i i just and he is going to choke gas i just don't see why he wouldn't uh and 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 really punish the europeans and put more pressure uh, on Europe. So I, I do think that, and I mentioned G5 credit impulse, I just don't see how it's not just a U.S. issue. This is going to be a global uh, recession. Yeah, you bring up the U.K. and say what you will about Boris Johnson, Partygate and everything, but with him leaving, uh, he was certainly a hawk on Russia. Uh, we don't know what new leadership out of coming out of the United Kingdom will look like. So that might be another you know, wrench in the pie, so to speak. Um, I, but when we're looking at the UK, uh, I mean, sorry, the US versus the Euro, we've reached parity. Um, that's first time in, in over 20 years. Well, if we wanted to go back to the Volkers, I think we'd have to go past parity by 7% yeah. for the relative dollar strengthening. But I mean, what does that mean? And, and, and like, how did this come about? Was this big, big part of this is just Europe being you know, in a rough neighborhood next to Putin and now I have all these supply constraints or is part of that that the Fed is just uh, he's got more credence than the ECB or, or what's your take on this? Yeah, you know, you know, it's still an experiment, right? Having Italy and Greece and Spain in the same economic union as Germany just I don't know. It probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think the I, I think the biggest issue for the euro is just the credibility of the ECB. I mean, at least the Fed has started tightening. They've started in earnest. QT is real. I mean, the ECB is still figuring out how they are going to keep long rates in Italy from from spiraling out of control. So they're actually they're actually looking at, in a sense, you know, a, 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 a some level it. It, it is quantitative easing if you're buying the long end of Italian treasury. So they just, they can't figure out how they are going to deal with inflation and they don't have the same wage price spiral as we do in the United States. So they don't have as much pressure on them on the inflation side. In other words, as the commodity side, which one would think would be more ephemeral and easier to deal with, um, but it really is such a supply issue for them. So there's just the Fed can control has at least a little bit more ability to crush demand uh, and rein in inflation. Whereas in Europe, um, they're so reliant on Russian gas and Russian oil that the ECB just doesn't have as much control over things. Um, they have they have the same they have the same demographic issues that we have as well. Uh, so I just, I, I'm not at all surprised that the dollar strength has continued. I think you are going to start to see, um, as the dollar continues to strengthen, you're going to see more and more stories from emerging markets about the disaster of dollar denominated debt. You know, you're, you're, you, you've got a weak local currency, um, that affects your, uh, your, the inflation because everything you import is, is far, far more expensive, that's inflationary. That's that, that's negative for growth. And now you've got dollar-denominated debt getting more and more expensive. So, you know, I hope Sri Lanka isn't a precursor of of what's to come for a lot of emerging markets. But there is an ugly side, I think, that is going to emerge from this from uh, from this dollar strength. 
yeah i mean between the conflict and now strength in dollar it's it's a tough time to be a frontier market for sure yeah. um do you think we've overlooked anything or is there anything you'd bring up that uh you know we probably we might have talked about you know just the political side i would just quickly mention the people that i follow the capitol hill observers that i follow I feel like they really have no idea what is going to happen in terms of this chip bill. Uh, you know, McConnell has basically said we're not doing, we're not going to do a chip bill as long as you guys are going to try to push, pull, push forward with a reconciliation bill. Uh, so, and and then with within the reconciliation negotiations, it really is two guys. It's Schumer and Manchin, and Manchin doesn't want any leaks. Manchin does, and so you really have no idea. Uh, whether or not they can get anywhere on the chip bill or whether they can get anywhere on reconciliation. Now, the, the other part of it is that a reconciliation bill is not a Build Back Better point two. It, it just isn't because Manchin is going to insist that any stimulus that's in there uh, is going to have to be offset uh, with, with revenue gains. Uh, so look, I hope they can get a reconciliation bill done. I hope they can get a drug pricing um, bill done just for humanity, just for just for Americans that suffer uh, from having to pay for drugs through the nose. I think it would be a good thing for inflation. Um, you know, maybe a minor thing, but a good thing for Americans. But it's just hard to have any confidence that anything can get done because look, the Republicans were going into the, into the election. We're in the election year. We're not far off from the midterms. It's just hard to imagine, uh, that there will be much progress made on the legislative side that would be in any way helpful. So man, one of these days we're going to do this podcast and I'm going to come in and have some, some positive shit to say, but yeah. <laughs> no, it ain't today. Uh, the chips bill. I mean, you have. I think I saw Intel just more or less said, "Look, we're trying to build this facility. I think out of Columbus, one with yeah. twenty thousand people. A lot of that nearshoring is going to be very difficult if we don't make big investments in chips. Um, and we, we decide to just give the game away to South Korea and China and Taiwan. But I seems like that's where our legislature is heading. I don't know. And, the, and they're going to need a hell of a lot of subsidies to do that and make that happen because they're, you're going to be importing engineers, you know, you, just as you have across the economy, you've got the kind of the, uh, the mismatch, the skills mismatch, certainly in the semiconductor industry, you're going to have a skills mismatch and there's going to have to be a, a meaningful amount of imported labor. So, you know, you just don't have it in central Ohio, the talent that you have in, in Taiwan, obviously. Right. So, yep. you know, they're, they're going to need a lot of government support to, support to get that done. And I think it's one of those areas where, you know, it, it, it is the smart right thing to do um, for the U.S. economy. I just I just don't think we have a political system that that is capable of getting it done. I think McConnell is going to hold him hostage on that. And I don't know, maybe I've just gotten cynical towards the political landscape on Capitol Hill, but it's hard for me to kind of see anything getting done. You also have the issue with the House liberals not wanting to accept the Senate chip bill and they could blow it up, too. So it's just it's just hard to be optimistic that you'll see something get done. All right. Sounds good. Uh, well, hopefully everyone, you know, had a good time with the fireworks and all our listeners you know, had a faith 4th of July. Uh, we'll be you know, back next week. Thanks for all your likes and subscribes and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wellfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wellfest. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthDesk does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WealthDesk does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.